Welcome to another edition of the Thoroughbred Daily News DDN Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Bill Finley, and I'm correspondent for the Thoroughbred Daily News and also co-host the Down the Stretch Show on Sirius XM with Dave Johnson. Hello, guys. I'm Randy Moss, NBC Sports, and also uh, part of the Buyer Speed Figure team. T.D. Thornton checking in here from a little north of Boston, and I'm also on the writing team at TDN. And I want to remind you that this week and every week, the TDN Writer's Room Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Keeneland. We'll be hearing more about what's going on at Keeneland uh, in just a little bit. Well, guys, the uh, biggest race of the week last week, I think, was the Ohio Derby because of the, you know, the prominence of the three-year-olds. And uh, a good story and a not-so-good story. Uh, to the surprise of no one, two fills, who I think, uh, particularly Randy, you were very high on him coming out of the Kentucky Derby, passed on the Preakness in Belmont, wins the Ohio Derby, wins it comfortably over a, for an Ohio Derby. Uh, a, a pretty good field. Bishop's Bay was second. Hay Strike, Lord Miles was in there. Uh, but then it turns out uh, we find out the next day that he has been injured. Uh, we uh, this, we are uh, filming this, taping this on a Tuesday. So by the between the time we are talking about it now and when uh, you're watching it, maybe more news will have come out on two Phil's injury. But Randy, it, it, it doesn't look like he's going to run again. Um, Larry Ravelli, the trainer, is saying that uh, you know it would be unlikely to get him back this year, and then you know why not just retire him to stud, which would be quite a shame uh, because I think at this point in time you could look at him and say maybe he is. Uh, if not for the injury, the best three-year-old in, in, in training. Oh, I think I think right now, if you uh, if you had to rank all the uh, all the three-year-olds in the country, I think two fields would be clearly number one uh, in the aftermath of the Ohio Derby. And as you pointed out, I mean, I'll be shocked if he if he ever runs again. You know, given the you know value of a good stallion versus racing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Larry Ravelli's already pointed out that uh, an injury of this nature, horses often don't come back uh, the same as they were before. All those, all those uh, points, I think, uh, add up to the fact that he'll, in my opinion, almost certainly be retired, and that's a shame. And now we're almost two months out since the Kentucky Derby. Ten horses have run back out of the race. Only two have won. Two fills and disarm came back to win. Uh, their subsequent starts. It was kind of fun for me looking back through the charts uh, just to see when was the last time a, a relevant three-year-old that took home a lot of hardware won the Ohio Derby. You have to go all the way back to skip away in 1996. And it was interesting to see just the, the different eras. Skip away ran in all three triple crown races. He was 12th in the Derby, second in both the Preakness and the Belmont. And then Trainer Sonny Hine wheeled him back in 15 days to, to uh, run in the Ohio Derby. I don't think we're going to be seeing any more types of, uh, we certainly won't be seeing any more skipaways, but no, that template, I think, is also out the window. Boy, those were the days, I tell you. Um, what's one other thing, I agree with you, Randy, I don't think he's going to run a, again, but there is somewhat of an incentive to do so because he's not a grade one winner, and that if he were to win a grade one, that would uh, make his uh, stud value uh, even higher. And then also we have the story uh, coming in, Jareth Loveberry. The jockey who uh, came from the Michigan circuit 
uh, into stardom on the Chicago circuit at Arlington and became the regular rider two fills was injured before the race and Gerardo Corrales had to take over. Okay, so going across the pond to England, we had Royal Ascot last week. And so far as uh, news re uh, relating to uh, or uh, relating to, yeah, uh, American horses, Crimson Advocates win in the Queen Mary was quite the story. Uh, he, she comes out of those uh, win-in-your-in races that they created at Gulfstream Park and won the Royal Palm Juvenile Philly Stakes there for uh, trainer uh, um, George Weaver. Reels back at Royal Ascot. John Velasquez writes, a tremendous finish. Wins by the tiniest of noses. Got the bob. A lot of smiles across uh, the backstretches of American racing because George Weaver, the trainer's a good guy, and also people were delighted that his wife, Cindy Hutter, who was uh, very seriously injured in, in a uh, training accident on July 3rd of last year at Saratoga, serious brain injury, was able to uh, make the trip over. I've also had George Weaver was one of the most underrated trainers in the sport, and uh, it was the big story for American Connections at Royal Ascot. Yes, and the other thing is, you know, it, very interesting to see how I think America's top big money rider on the front end, John Velasquez, says he almost misjudged the uh, the timing there. They're coming down a straightaway. There are two hills that he has to negotiate. He said he wished he would have saved a little bit more for the second hill. And how about George Weaver? It, it's not like he just decided on a whim, hey, I ran third in a maiden uh, special way to Keeneland. I won one of the qualifying races at Gulfstream. Let's go over the pond to Ascot. This is a months-in-the-making plan, and I know George was quoted as saying the last, and I believe the only other time he went to Ascot was eight years ago. He didn't want to go back until he had the right horse. Well, he had the right horse last week. Those uh, auto qualifier races at Gulfstream Park, the Royal Palm Juvenile, the Royal Palm Juvenile Phillies on May the 13th, the first of their kind ever in the United States, where a winner of those races is an automatic qualifier to any of the six two-year-old Royal Ascot races that they choose. And George Weaver swept the two races at Gulfstream Park. He started off winning the Colts division with no-name Mets, who's owned by Alex Bregman, the Astros' third baseman. Then an hour and a half later, Crimson Advocate wins the Philly race. So what's interesting in how John Velasquez picked up the mount and the Royal Palm Juvenile Phillies, okay, Velasquez was on a first-time starter, Stone Street Stable, Wesley Ward, named Ocean Mermaid that was four to five in that race. When the gates open, Crimson Advocate, it's like, I mean, almost like she beat the gate. She's a length that I have two links in front right off the bat, which in a turf sprint is pretty difficult to do. Uh Ocean Mermaid ran really well to finish second, almost six lengths ahead of the rest of the field, but Crimson Advocate beat Ocean Mermaid wire to wire by three and a quarter. Velasquez on Ocean Mermaid got off, approached George Weaver, I think he called him, and said, hey, I want to ride your horse at Royal Ascot. He knew how good Ocean Mermaid was, and if Crimson Advocate beat her that convincingly, that's the horse the JV wanted to ride at Royal Ascot, and of course, uh, that paid out. And what I think is really interesting, I didn't really realize this until reading the stories, only three American trainers have ever won a race at Royal Ascot. Wesley Ward, who didn't have a very good meet this year, has won a dozen. Mark Cassie won with Teppin, if you remember. I think it was the Queen Anne uh, a few years ago. And now George Weaver, becoming only the third American to win over at Royal Ascot. 
Randy, the disappointment among American horses was Wesley Ward's American Rascal, that beautifully bred horse by Carlin out of Lady Aurelia herself, uh, a winner at Royal Ascot, was 13th in the Norfolk Stakes. Your thoughts on, on American Rascal and any other things that uh, caught your attention at Royal Ascot? Well, I think uh, we, we discussed uh, American Rascal being a sort of curdlin. I think the curdlin came out more than the Lady Aurelia came out in that race. And I doubt we'll be seeing American Rascal on grass again. Uh, that's a distinct possibility. The four horses that Wesley ran, uh, Fandom was the, uh, the best finisher. He finished 11th. Uh, four win in your in Breeders' Cup races. The Queen Anne was won by triple time. Uh, trainer Kevin Ryan has been a regular at the Breeders' Cup. He won the turf sprint with glass slippers. He was second last year with Emiratiana. He's had horses in the Breeders' Cup the last three years. So maybe triple time will come. Brad Sell won the King's Stand. Archie Watson, that trainer, has had some, he's had three Breeders' Cup starters. The Prince of Wales is won by in very strong fashion by Mostadoff is Adiar finished third. Mostadoff owned by Shadwell, trained by John Gosden. Gosden quoted after the race as saying that uh, the horse is brilliant on firm turf, so maybe Santa Anita might be in play. And then Valiant Force, the 150-1 to 1 winner of the Norfolk, that's the race that American Rascal ran so poorly in. Uh, he's already, uh, the trainer Adrian Murray, first group win ever, has already been quoted as saying that the uh, juvenile, the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf Sprint is the goal, is the end of the year goal. So we may see some participation there in Royal Ascot heading down the road to Santa Anita at the Breeders' Cup. I want to remind you the TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by Keeneland. Last week at Royal Ascot, Keeneland September grads were on center stage. Thursday, Valiant Force won the Group 2 Norfolk Stakes, the most important stakes race of the Royal Meeting for two-year-olds. He's a Keeneland November weanling grad and a $100,000 Keeneland September yearling grad. And Friday, King of Steel won the Group 2 King Edward VII stakes. He is a $200,000 2021 Keeneland September grad. Keeneland is the home of the world's yearling sale. The energy, magic, and momentum of the September yearling sale returns September 11th through the 23rd. Learn more at the world's yearling sale. Once again, that's the world's yearling sale.com. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar. Reminding us why. For the love of the horse. For generations to come. The best two-year-old by legendary sire, Quality Road. Get it back, a million five. Very, very impressive debut. Cantering home could not have been more impressive. Coast to coast in the American Pharaoh. He's the real deal. Undefeated and unchallenged at two. He's just too good. He wins the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Cornish. Cornish, the newest champion to Coolmore, America. The TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by Coolmore. Sequoia became the newest grade one winner for Practical Joke on Saturday when he won the Group 1 Classico Tantio de Portrillos. Chile, I can, uh, apologize for probably botching the pronunciation of everything that I just said to you. But anyways, also was a third straight victory and first stakes win for Classic Empire's Ascendancy on Saturday when the Philly won the She's a Tiger Stakes by three and a quarter lengths at Pleasanton. 
And the Coolmore sire, Wooten Bassett, had not one but two Group 2 Royal Ascot winners this week when River Tiber won the Coventry Stakes and King of Steel came home first in the Group 2 King Edward VII Stakes. So let's get back to some of the news that was made during the week. And T.D. Thornton, you reported on a story of the New York Gaming Commission putting in new rules uh, that require a trainer to have their private veterinarian examine a horse 72 hours before a race and 72 hours before a workout. And um, if you look at the comment section um, on your story on, on the Thoroughbred Daily News, um, really universal, just panning this rule. This is from somebody by the name of Vito Cucci. Love it. Gonna save me so lots of money. How, you ask? Well, because as a horse owner and breeder for almost 40 years, I'll never invest another dime in this in the horse business. Now, I do understand there's some issues here, uh, extra expense, extra paperwork. Uh, you might even say there's some uh, issues with the vets. Uh, you know, having are they really going to look at their trainer and, and say, you know, this horse isn't shouldn't be allowed to run and, and kind of forcing the trainer to scratch it. But the negativity to this, I don't get. And, you know, maybe I'm missing something here. Granted, you know, this is somewhat of a, of a hassle for trainers. But aren't we supposed to be doing everything possible to keep these horses safe? And if you ask me, you you can't have too many eyes look at these horses and make sure before they go out for workouts and for races that they are in the proper shape and, and, and that you're not taking unnecessary chances. I mean, that very thing is the main thing that turned the numbers around in California. So, you know, you know, maybe there's something, uh, you know, because I'm not a trainer, maybe there's some issues that I don't quite understand. I'm willing uh, to to uh, realize that. But boy, I, on the surface, I think it's a good rule. And remember, this is just a proposed rule. So everybody who commented uh, will have a chance. The, the rule is out for a public commentary period, and it has to come back before the commission, before they make a final vote, before it gets adopted. But yeah, there were some concerns about the cost burden. I, I don't know off the top of my head how much of a uh, an attending veterinarian would charge a trainer just to look at a horse and clear it for a workout. Uh, there's also the uh, the burden of responsibility or perhaps even liability for the veterinarians who pays them, the owners and trainers. But yet at some point, if something happens and there is an injury, their license might be up for grabs, uh, you know, or, or up for censure at the commission level. So the vets are in a little bit of a dicey position there. And I think one thing that struck me in, in the, my reporting of this when I covered the gaming commission meeting on Monday, the New York commission... Uh, contrasted with, for example, the California Horse Racing Board, which often debates these items ad nauseum and takes hours of public commentary on a single issue. New York, they do things a little differently. The staff researches it. They make a recommendation and it essentially gets rubber stamped. I was astounded in, in covering the meeting on Monday that there was zero public discussion among the commissioners before they took the vote. It was uh, just quick. The, the motion was made, the vote was taken, and now it goes out for the public commentary period. So we'll see if that actually gets adopted and if, if horsemen weigh in on it and, and what comes of that. Yeah, of course, there was a recent spate of breakdowns at Belmont Park, uh, horse deaths. Uh, to me, this smacks is a little bit more of a public relations move uh, than something that they think is going to have, you know, real solid tangible benefits. But there's an old saying, so don't let perfect get in the way of good. 
by that in this particular situation. When you're talking about private veterinarians examining the horses, I agree with you, Bill. I mean, there is a disincentive there for a private veterinarian who is uh, ostensibly making a lot of money from a large stable, a, lo a trainer of a large stable, to tell that trainer, uh, no, you know, I'm not going to approve this horse running in the race, even though you want it to, or I'm not going to approve you breezing this horse this morning, uh, even though you think that the horse is okay. Uh, but I also agree that, you know, if, if it does create a little more pressure uh, on the private veterinarians uh, to be even a little more careful than they already are, and trainers as well, before they send a horse out to work, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. Cost, we'll see how that all shakes out. That's, that's a legitimate concern. But I agree that as many eyes as possible should be on these horses before workouts and before races. And even though it's not a perfect scenario, it doesn't make it a bad one. Other news during the week, Edgar Prado, Hall of Famer Edgar Prado announced his retirement. 7,119 victories, eighth winningest rider uh, in history. But um, you know none of these riders can beat Father Time. And he was 56 years old and he really, you know, it's, it's kind of a shame because the, the way he has been going the last couple of years, we kind of a little bit forgot about what he was like uh, in his prime. But in 2021 and 2022, he only won 26 combined races, winning at 8.5 percent. And, uh, you know, at some point, he obviously just decided that uh, uh, he was not going to kick around riding, you know, seven, eight winners a year. Jeannie, one thing that is interesting, um, you're a New England guy. Uh, he rode very briefly in Florida. But really, the first U.S. track after he came over from Peru, where he made a name for himself, was at Suffolk Downs in 1988. Uh, won a, a bunch of races there before moving on to Maryland. Very competitive jockey colony at the time. And when you think of Edgar Prado in his fully formed later years, when he really had that pro edge, you think of a cool head, savvy touch with the reins, yet very strong. Edgar could set a horse down and, and not dissuade the horse from, uh, you know, overreacting uh, and, and without having the horse overreact to his urging. Very strong work ethic. But Edgar was, you know, was a bit of a hothead back in the day. I remember when he first moved to Maryland, uh, he got in a couple of fights in the jockey's room there. And as I was going back through uh, looking at some of the stories from the 1980s, one of the quotes that stood out from Edgar to me said, you know, he eventually shed off that fiery edge. He was said he was just trying to prove himself when he was young, like a lot of jockeys have to do. He took some, in his own words, some dicey chances. And he later said, you know, when you win and you get on the good horses, you ride with a cooler head. And that's the Edgar that we remember later on in his career. He'll forever be associated with winning the, the 2006 Derby on Barbaro. But he had a couple of other big triple crown upsets. He was aboard Sarava in the Belmont Stakes when Sarava popped at 70 to 1. And he also foiled Sparty Jones' bid for the triple crown in 2004. He was on Birdstone that day. Now, we want to bring your attention to the Godolphin's TIEA Awards, and TIEA stands for the Thoroughbred Industry Employee Award. It goes each year to a, somebody that works in the thoroughbred industry uh, who deserves recognition for excellence and a job well done. And we caught up with a previous winner of the award, Sandy Hatfield, and she is able to tell us why this award matters and why farms and should nominate their employees to something that's very important, the TIEA Awards. 
I'm Sandy Hatfield, and I'm the stallion manager at Three Chimneys Farm. And I was lucky enough to win the Godolphin Award in 2018. I won it, won it for the leadership in the breeding category. And when they told me I was nominated, I was just so excited. It's just an honor to be nominated and for Godolphin to get these awards out to the people that work with the horses every day. I just think that's so exciting. And then to go to the awards ceremony and meet all the other nominees. I met so many nice people, so many cool people. And then to win was amazing. I just never thought in my wildest dreams that I would win. And it's just a great thing to think about your peers and the people that you work with every day are saying that you're good at what you do. So it's, it's wonderful. And to see the young people that were there, it makes you feel good about how the industry is gonna go forward. I think they were all so excited, especially the young up and coming awards. They were all so excited and the people that were in the racing categories, the grooms and the assistants. And you know, the guy that won couldn't even stay. He had to get back because he was running a horse that afternoon. So it was just exciting to see all those people and to see them recognized for the hard work that we put in six, seven days a week. And for Godolphin to sponsor those awards is just amazing. The Nominations close on July the 16th for the awards. And we all know somebody that is exceptional that could be nominated. And it's to be nominated, I can tell you, it's so exciting. So please think about who you would nominate. And there's so many different categories. Everybody can find a category to nominate somebody in. But remember, they close on this July the 16th. So get your nomination in. Nominate now. Nominate. Nominate now. Have you nominated yet? Nominate now. Don't miss out. Nominate today. Nomina hoy para los premios de la industria. Nominate now. Nominate your employees today. Who are your unsung heroes? Have you nominated? Visit TIEA.org and nominate a deserving candidate today. What are you waiting for? Why haven't you nominated yet? Meanwhile, the TDN Riders Room is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. Another reminder about the Pennsylvania Sired Pennsylvania Bread Series for two-year-olds. Back and better than ever on three different days, right? Race for two-year-olds, race for two-year-old fillies. Monday, August 21st, those stakes are worth 100000 Saturday, September 23rd, they're worth 150000 And then December the 27th, they're each worth 200000 There's also a combined $50,000 bonus structure to the trainer and the top three equine point earners. Now, you only have till the end of this month, June the 30th, to nominate your PA sired PA bred horse. $1,000 is the fee. On July the 1st, that fee will go up to $5,000. You can learn more about this at pabread.com. Coming up next, Green Group Guest of the Week, Mr. Pat Cummings. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA sired, PA bred two-year-olds at parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the Races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. And now it's time for the Fastest Horse of the Week, presented by the Fast Sires at Windstar Farm, such as the grade one winning millionaire by Smart Strike. That would be Tom's Data, a 
dominant three and a quarter length winner of the Clark Stakes at Churchill Downs. On that day, he ran a mile and an eighth at 148.84, entered a buyer's speed figure of 105. He earned 10 triple digit buyer's speed figures in his career, including nine in a row. Tom Stata's first yearlings, or weanlings rather, sold for up to $130,000 and his first yearlings will arrive at sales this summer. Now, speaking of a 105 buyer speed figure that Tom Stetat earned, we have co-fastest horse of the weeks uh, this week, both with a 105 buyer. Of course, it was two Phils who won the Ohio Derby very impressively, but also Society, the winner of the Chicago Stakes on Saturday at Ellis Park. Society won that race by 10 lengths. We've seen in the past Society be able to really reel off some fast times, some fast figures when she's at her very best. She was certainly at her best on Saturday. So two fastest horses of the week, both two fills and society. Now for the Green Group Guest of the Week, the TDN Riders Room, of course, is brought to you by the Green Group, a tax accounting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry and in saving you money on your taxes. And we welcome in now the Green Group Guest of the Week, Patrick Cummings from the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation. We brought him on to talk about his recent uh, paper he put out, white paper or press release, whatever you want to call it, about the effects of CAW, Computer Assisted Wagering, players on uh, horse racing. But, Pat, before we get to that, I want to know, what the heck are you doing in South Africa? Oh, I've, I've got friends over here. I've, I've made the trip a couple times before, and this coming Saturday is the 127th running of the Durban July, a handicap over a mile and three-eighths. It's a great race. Uh, I came into Durban the other day. All around the baggage claim in the airport was nothing but Durban July um, marketing. Um, they'll get about 50,000 people out on Saturday. It's it's billed as one of the top social events of the year. And really, in all of South Africa, there was there was uh, uh, advertising on the plane down. I mean, in the video screens, it was it was really incredible. Um, so it's 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 a it's a fun place to be, and uh, it's great for anyone that has U.S. dollars because they go a heck of a lot farther here than just about anywhere else in the world. So I wonder how the CAW players are going to attack the card Saturday <laughs> in Durban. If anybody knows the answers to that, it's Pat Cummings, because the work he's done on what is a very important issue in thoroughbred racing has been important work. And he's really digging into the statistics more so than anybody else to try to uh, get some answers to the uh, many questions that we have about this. Patrick, uh, your latest report you put out for the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation was called Sharks and Minnows. And I think the subheadline would be that the sharks are getting bigger and the minnows are getting smaller. Is that the case? And tell us why. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think most of us are minnows uh, at the end of the day. And there are a couple sharks and, and two in particular have, have gotten quite big in recent years. Uh, yeah, it, it's just the reality. Now, I think it's worth putting into perspective that the data that we present in the story is from California and specifically Del Mar as the largest independent track that does not own an ADW and really doesn't own the direct CAW relationships like uh, we see with both Santa Anita and Golden Gate through the first family of companies where there is a connection to the CAW um, ownership itself. Uh, Delmar doesn't have that. And so we thought they were a great example to use to show 
how much total wagering is coming from these groups that are using algorithms, programs to not just analyze the races, but to structure their bets and then to actually place them. And the greater horse racing industry in America has given these groups unfettered access to place essentially all of their bets with the click of one button instantaneously. That value or that that, uh, opportunity does not exist to any other player uh, in the marketplace. And, And these groups have grown to the point now where we break it down by pool, but in some pools, they are pushing almost 40% of total betting at Del Mar in 2022. It is, it's really significant, and it's, and it's grown even more significant in just the last five years. Well, let's, let's look at this from 35,000 feet, okay? Let's give just an overview for people watching that you know, may be involved in owning horses, breeding horses, but they don't really grasp the gravity of this particular situation. Why should someone uh, who loves horse racing, who's involved in horse racing, be concerned about the rise of the CAWs? Yeah, so as we uh, alluded to just a second ago there, Randy, not only are the sharks growing, but the minnows are declining. And we, for the first time in this paper, were able to really separate how the CAW play has grown and how all other customers have in almost every pool shrunk. Um, So while total handle figures are often marketed in industry press releases, they're touted and you see on an annual basis, not a whole lot of change. A point here, a point there, 2%, 2% up, 2% down. Uh, That's not telling us the accurate picture. And, And for years now, Thoroughbred Idea Foundation has wanted to really dive into who's betting, how are they betting, how are they participating, how is the market changing? What we're seeing now more clearly than ever before is that it's all other customers. We're talking about people that may bet $10 a year or maybe even $2 million a year. They are a smaller percentage of the pools and declining. So racing gets its social license from people who participate in it. And if we have a smaller base of participants that are engaging racing through wagering, that is a problem across the entirety of the sport. And that is what we are seeing here. These numbers that California provides, that no other state provides, mind you, uh, is giving us this insight and it is concerning. And I think it's, you know, as, as we address something that the industry needs to take seriously and to make some changes to how it engages its most professional, largest betters, and certainly its most mainstream, uh, the widest base of its customers. Pat, is it a stretch to say that there could be a like a doomsday scenario coming into play here whereby Eventually, if all the sharks force the minnows out of the game and they're chasing what is, you know, we would call in quotes, the stupid money, uh, the the uninformed money. Once all the minnows have been depleted, I would assume the sharks aren't going to feast on each other. They will just vacate the game and they'll pull back. Is that is that a possibility? Not only a a possibility, I'd call it a real threat, TD. And I would suggest that some of the biggest sharks are eating some of the smaller ones too. Um, and, and so we were able to go back in this paper for six years, but we've collected data from the CHRB dating back to 2008 
look, this was not always the issue it is now. Uh, the greater U.S. horse racing industry commissioned a study through the NTRA back in 2003 and found that at that time, the CAW betting was roughly 7 or 8% of total handle. We think that number today is now at least over a third of total betting, and it's higher in certain pools. This affects essentially almost every racetrack and almost every pool. So it's incredibly widespread. But the threat is twofold. Number one, if the biggest of the big players get a slightly better deal somewhere else, right? Let's say that um, French Racing comes along and says, we're going to give you this voluminous rebate. And then they leave because America is not able to match that. That becomes problematic, right? So, so there is a threat that if one or two of the biggest customers decide we're getting out of the business, we're shifting our focus to sports, shifting to something else, you could literally see roughly 20% of American handle on wagering walk away from one or two players. But the, the degradation of the base, I think, is the most concerning thing. It has been slow. We have felt it. We have seen the industry shift from exclusively on track, where if you wanted to wager and essentially gamble, you had to be on track to do it, to off-track betting, to, to full-scale simulcasting, to ADWs, then the pandemic, to literally say, we can't have you here in some cases. So we've seen this traumatic push over the years uh, that has allowed many racetrack and track operators to not focus on the customers that are right there in front of them. There are fewer and fewer people that go to the racetrack. So one statistic that we, we found in this that I, I don't even think we pointed out directly in the paper, but if you just looked at raw numbers, forget even adjusting for inflation, on-track show betting at Del Mar. Del Mar, already a track that gets a large daily attendance and has a very high number of amateur uh, bettors, essentially, that come out. Casual horse players. The, the on-track show bet should be fairly strong for this crowd over some other tracks. On-track show betting was down 18% in the five years from 2018 to 2022, and that was not adjusting for inflation at all. Whereas the biggest CAWs, their show betting has grown 170% or 128% when you adjust for inflation. That, those are significant changes. These are concerns. They should concern the track operators, but really the horsemen. And the horsemen have to come into consideration here because horsemen have contract signatory rights over interstate wagering contracts. And they need to be a part of the, 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 the they need the wagering. Uh, they need the, the license to continue operating. And that comes from wagering. Uh, if we see a continued degradation, the, the horsemen are in trouble here long term without greater oversight. Pat, uh, T.D. brought up something that, that I've always uh, felt about this situation. He used the word doomsday. And, you know, that that word is appropriate because of the reasons uh, you just said that, you know, they're going to eat up all the minnows and then they start eating up the, the larger sharks. And all of a sudden we're left with three super betters betting uh, uh, against each other. Now, I'm I realizing that that's not totally realistic, but but, you know, we are definitely heading in the, that direction. And you touched on this. Um, if you don't ban these guys, we're going to continue down this road. It gets worse and worse every year. And it's a huge problem for racing. They're driving the regular guy out of the game. But if you do ban them, you lose 25 uh, percent of your handle. 
So I, I know you uh, have some suggestions to make the, the, the situation better. Um, but, you know, I, in all honesty, they, they'll make things, you know, a little bit easier to swallow, but I don't think they solve any of the bigger problems. What is the solution to this problem or is there just no solution? Now, my greatest source of optimism really in all of racing is that when it comes to the wagering business on American horse racing, it's like we're not even trying. So if we start applying ourselves and tackling these sorts of issues, um, I think it's incredibly possible to kind of get a handle on this and to start making some changes. And the, the greatest example of this is the New York Racing Association. So they are one of the minority owners of Elite Turf Club, the biggest betting services provider for the CAW betters. Uh, they, two years ago, shut out the CAWs from betting in the wind pool inside of two minutes to post. They didn't stop them in exactus, try supers, doubles, pick threes, or pick fours. They did take one of their pick fives, the late pick five, and said no CAW players in this late pick five either. So if an ordinary horse player wants to go to a pool that is relatively free of the CAWs and is not going to see their uh, late win odds come crashing down, horse goes in the gate at 7-1, to one, comes out at 7-2, to two, something that happens at almost every track in America on a regular basis, Naira is the place for you. And if you think you may have missed stories that suggested that Naira's handle has plummeted as a result of this, I assure you, you have not, right? If, the, if one of the owners of the CAW betting service providers can say, we can operate our races totally fine without them in the pools, in the wind pool, inside of two minutes to post, and not in our late pick five pool, I think a lot of other tracks could tolerate that as well. Uh, there are other steps. We have been walking around showing will pays on our track feeds for 30 seconds, uh, 20 minutes before the start of the next race. For years, they sit on our ADW platforms and they are just a dollar amount. We need to start converting that information into imputed odds. Put those on track feeds, put them on television broadcasts, because we are hopelessly misleading customers if they think that this horse that is currently seven to one and has been seven to one for 20 minutes is going to go off at seven to one. When you have a previously closed wagering pool, like the double, the pick three, the pick four, where it is now clear that this horse is very likely to be the second choice in the race, and he's sitting there at seven to one fourth choice right now, why mislead our customers when there is actually a solution to say, this is actually a better representation of how uh, a previously closed wagering market has, has reflected the, the win probability of this particular horse. And those same betters that made that horse seven to two in the pick four, they're going to be coming back in the win pool too, unless they've put in a Naira-like policy to limit them inside of two minutes to post. Those sorts of things can easily be put in place and no one's done it. So uh, that's, again, what I suggest. The, we can be optimistic about the possibilities because as it stands today, we're basically not trying anything. Uh, so I, I do think there is hope here um, that, that we can avoid the doomsday scenario and we can really affect a more positive outcome for everyone who's participating. And frankly, that includes the CAWs who should be shouting this from the rooftops too, right? They're getting big rebates. They want to continue participating. And the public has a really bad impression of them.
and, and I think rightfully so, because the industry isn't helping that their case along either. So to get your professional opinion about something, people might be wondering this. Uh, all this CAW money that's now flooding the mutual pools, is it, in your opinion, is it disguising uh, an overall weakness in the sport uh, from the everyday customers, a decline that likely would have happened anyway without the CAW? Or as we've discussed, the Sharks versus the Minnows, are the CAW players, how much are they actually chasing regular betters out of the game? Uh, it's both, Randy, I, I believe. I, I, I think undoubtedly uh, it is glossing over the reality. So um, it, it makes general industry stakeholders feel better about themselves when they see the report. The total handle is only down 1% or 2%. Uh, when in reality, CAW handle is up and all other customers are down and they're not uh, they're not balancing out. We, we don't see those kind of line items uh, in in those sorts of, of press releases. So uh, it has been making everybody feel better. But for what purpose? Right. We just need to be much more straightforward. And there is no central reporting body in this sport that is putting this information out on a regular basis. Um we found it through the CHRB. Uh, others have found it too. Um, but so, so, so that's something that needs to be addressed. We, we just need to be in touch with, with truth and reality. We can also be against progress, right? We need modernization and innovation. And uh, frankly, CAWs do represent that. We need more CAWs. We need more young engineers and, and modelers and programmers want to get their hands on racing's data and they you know, put, put some programs together and try and tackle this. And maybe they just start out by tackling two-year-old races, right? And they're, and they're making pedigree plays. Maybe, it's, maybe it's, it's dirt sprints, right? And that's what they focus on. But we need more people to be engaged in this. And, and right now it's not. Right now it's a handful of individuals. We have not tried to pursue that market and to make that a little bit better. Uh, I would say, though, uh, a, a significant point of concern is that the cost of wagering has only gone up for all other customers, right? Takeout rates have not come down commensurate with all of this money coming in at low price points um, and driven by technology. And that's the opposite experience that investors have had with all of the high-frequency trading in the equity markets, um, we have seen costs for customers come crashing down, right? The days of the $35 stock commission are long gone. And yet 50, 60, maybe even 70% of all trading on the stock market now is, is high-frequency trading. Uh, ordinary investors in 401ks and IRAs, regular mutual fund holders, exchange-traded funds, different products have been created to allow ordinary investors to buy and hold. And their costs have come down from where they were 20 years ago. We have not seen that same evolution in American horse racing wagering, which remains one of the most expensive gambles that are out there. And as the products around us have developed and become far more consumable, approachable, on uh, remote devices, 
Sports betting is now ubiquitous, legal in 39 states, I think we're talking about now. The competition is more fierce than ever before and at lower price points, generally speaking, for customers. Racing needs to compete. And like I suggested, it's, it's like we haven't really been trying. So the, the hope remains in, in what is still undone. And I think we, we can do a lot in that space. Pat, one of the things that I found very eye-opening about reading your report, which anybody can go and read, it's on the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation website, was the tremendous negotiating power these individuals uh, who bet through the CAWs have with individual tracks. And you mentioned one case that is uh, there was almost an offer that the tracks couldn't refuse that amounted to what you described as a payday loan type of scenario. Could you touch on that just to give an example of how the CAW players negotiate with tracks to get these advantageous rates that are way out of reach for the $2 better. So the planning and the research uh, for this paper has been ongoing really for years, TD. And different stories have come to, to me, uh, some of our consultants over the years. Uh, and, and this is one that's cropped up in, in recent months where it is believed and, and we've been told, I've been told individually by multiple racetrack executives, different tracks, that some of the biggest players were approaching tracks and offering a deal in which they would prepay a portion of their host fee, essentially their takeout, uh, in advance of that year's races at that track. So so the, the big CAW goes to track A and says, we paid you a host fee of $300,000 last year. So we're going to wire you today, hypothetically, $300,000, let's say. Um, and you keep track and you tell us when we get to that point of what we would have accrued. But after that, we want a reduction in the host fee that we pay on all money over that amount. So essentially, you are trying to create a deal where you as the track are going to get a bunch of money up front and then reduce the host fee on already the one or two biggest horse players in the country that will enable that horse player to drive a price on a horse to say three to two that the other CAWs think is probably fair at two to one that the mainstream players think is fair at five to two or three to one. And what price do you think that horse is going to end up at? It's going to end up at three to two, right? Because you are creating this unhealthy economic situation that throws all of the accolades, all of the favors go into the hands of the biggest one or two players. Now, the three track executives that I spoke with on this all claim that they did not accept this deal. But since we have published this paper, I did hear that there is at least one track in America that has accepted this deal and is operating it this year. Now, it's not my place to say it, because I can't confirm it directly. Um, but uh, it is worth noting that that, that in fact is happening. Uh, it's believed to be happening. And I think that all of the other CAW players who aren't these one or two biggest customers who are shopping these deals are probably pretty unhappy with that too, right? That it creates essentially a, a, a tiered structure and that someone else is still getting a better deal. Pat, among the suggestions that you had for how to deal with this situation, I thought the, the one that was most pertinent and one that is realistic that could happen is that we have to stop 
offering these jackpot bets. Oh. And, you know, they're sucker bets. With or without the CAWs, they're sucker bets. But what we're seeing is that there's no churn. It ties up everybody's money. And at the end of the day, the, the jackpots are scooped up by the CAW players. And the regular player, again, goes away um, with uh, nothing but uh, losses to show for it. Um, tell us more about that. And, and, and we have seen some tracks uh, adopt this. Uh, obviously, you hope that we see more. Yeah, so Naira had a, a, a jackpot provision on their pick six. They eliminated it. Keeneland had a super high five jackpot. They've gotten rid of it. Uh, in 2023, I believe Horseshoe Indianapolis eliminated their jackpot play. Uh, it, that is a trend we hope catches on and catches on yesterday. Um, that, that, that's fantastic uh, movement. Uh, but for the tracks that still have it, uh, it defies all logic to continue it. Um, the data that we present in this Sharks and Minnows piece, there's two elements of it that focused on the pick six. One was that it was the only pool that experienced any meaningful growth from ordinary horse players at Del Mar in the five years that we studied. That's really disappointing. Uh, the biggest change that occurred during that five-year period of time is that in 2021, Delmar decreased the minimum investment on the jackpot play to 20 cents. So it became far more approachable for more players and handle has grown tremendously. Unfortunately, it's grown even more from the CAWs as a result. And while we weren't able to and aren't able to break down exactly what days the CAWs are playing, I would venture a guess that the vast majority of their money is coming in on mandatory payout day. The conventional wisdom would always suggest the mandatory payout day is the day you should play. There's free money in there, right? And in, in a case at a track like Gulfstream or Del Mar, sometimes those jackpots are really large and you think, yeah, that now's my opportunity to go into it. The reality is you're probably going to lose anyway, right? It's very tough to pick six winners, and I can assure you sometimes I have trouble picking one. I don't think I'm alone in that regard. But uh, the jackpot in particular, what we have seen from data that we got out of the state of Florida, had to pay for it, had to analyze it. It was not straightforward. But we saw that ordinary customers' return on investments on mandatory payout days was like maybe two times worse than the takeout. Then the actual takeout rate. So if the takeout rate on a, bl a blended takeout was 21%, we we'd see mainstream ADW players losing 40, 50, and in some cases, 60% of their investment on the entirety of mandatory payout day. So we weren't even able to isolate the individual pool in Florida. We're just looking at the entirety of the day, and it, it was all bad news. So if you run a paramutual wagering business and your goal is to keep collecting commissions on paramutual wagering, then the introduction of a bet that limits the often the, the number of times that a customer can keep coming back to your window and churning their money and reintroducing the takeout cycle on that money. If your goal is to, to introduce a bet that limits that, you're going in complete contravention to all traditional business logic that would drive customers back into your wagering pools. And yet, tracks continue to persist with these bets. And like I've heard stories from horse players that think it's all one big conspiracy. And, and I understand that, you know, 
Um, uh, anointing the next conspiracy theory is maybe a, a, a 2023 trend, but uh, but it's it's some sort of added uh, rebate for these big uh, professional players. I don't buy that, um, but I can understand where people would think that that is even a possibility. Um, the jackpots need to go as quickly as possible at all tracks, revert to a traditional play, get that daily payout, get that churn up. The sport needs churn. It's better for every stakeholder along the way. Might not be better for CAWs on mandatory payout day because they seem to do pretty well. So, Patrick, when I explain to casual horse players, friends of mine, the economics behind the CAW players and about how they can have their uh, fancy, expensive algorithms and really they can have a goal of just breaking even on their wagers and then clean up with all the rebates that they're getting. And a lot of these rebates began offshore. How many American racetracks or American racing organizations, track owners, are offering rebates to CAWs themselves? I think it's almost all. Um, the potential loan exception is is probably uh, Oaklawn. Uh, to my understanding, uh, they, they have dabbled very, very lightly in this, if at all. Um, of course, very little of this information is public, Randy, right? So um, for the CAWs, the, the almost everybody is engaging in this. And um, what would you estimate most of those rebates would be? What percentage? For the biggest, for the biggest CAWs, uh, I think they're probably um, in the ballpark of 15% rebates. Um, on exotic bets, it could be as high as 20%. On things like the win bets, it's probably lower closer to 10%. And it's going to vary by track, by signal, by pool. Um, but we're definitely in the double digits. So we always talk about in the sport about how important takeout is. And we've been, all of us have been beating this drum for so long about reducing the takeout for betters. If, if these CAWs are betting so much money at these tracks and the tracks are willingly giving them 10, 15% rebate, why can't they just slash the takeout rate by that much for everybody? It It is um, the greatest example I think I've ever seen that pricing matters to betters is just how much the CAWs have grown as their rebates have increased. Yes. Right? This this is the case study that, that shows that pricing actually does matter. If you are increasing the amount back into the hands of players, it is driving them to, to wager more. Um, that should matter for horse racing. So to keep a, a, a very wide base of your customers at a very high price point to essentially pay them less when they win uh, or not pay them at all when they lose and not incentivize them to come back uh, has hurt their participation. And now with so many other options uh, for how to spend one's discretionary income, uh, that's dedicated for for gam gambling in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think we've really missed the boat there. Um, but but this is a walking example of of economic incentives, and the CAWs have responded very clearly to lower price points. Um, now to to more directly answer your question, Randy, I think it's because in some jurisdictions changing takeout rates is hard, and so the focus has gone to ways in which we can skirt this and have some similar effect. 
So in California, for example, the takeout rates are set by statute. You have to change the law. And horse racing, as we all know, has experienced a lot of issues in recent years. And I think it's just tougher to go to legislators and lobby and say the rates that we hold need to come down. And it's particularly tough in a, in a place like California where uh, there are no other sources of prize money. The wagering alone is the source of prize money. Um, however, the enormity of the task, the difficulty thereof, should not be what dissuades us from trying to better the overall long-term outcomes of the industry and making our sport as sustainable as possible on wagering on our own races. So despite the, the, the difficulty that changing takeout in certain states at a statutory level, we need to fight that. We, we, we need to be as competitive as possible. And in some states, that's going to be a tougher political lift than others. But uh, there really should be no excuse uh, for our business. We should be trying on all fronts to get more people wagering. Pat, the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation has been around for, I believe, about six years now. And um, you essentially function, in my opinion, as an ombudsman for the sport. And a lot of your reports that you write uh, just read like investigative journalism. And they're all tied together. There's, you've covered the integrity of the tote system, retention and development of existing customers, the issue about penny breakage. And that was a big bright spot. You wrote about that back in 2018. It took four years, but eventually Kentucky did adopt the penny breakage in 2022. Where do we stand on the horizon? Anybody else going to jump aboard um, the penny breakage, to your knowledge? I hope so, TD. Um, I, I don't have uh, any any more wins in that regard to report right now. But um, similarly, it's a heavy lift in certain jurisdictions and others maybe not so much. I've tried some very small ones and it, it's tough to get anybody to respond. To be fair, the whole breakage conversation started in New York, where I thought this might be the easiest spot because New York already had the nation's most liberal breakage policy, thanks to some really great work from Steve Christ on a panel with, with Governor Mario Cuomo back in the 1990s. So New York now has the country's second most liberal policy, only behind Kentucky. But in getting a change in Kentucky, the political waters had to be just right. There were other things that were going on. There was a paramutual taxation reform initiative. That doesn't happen all that often. Um, but the timing of it just worked out really right. We were in the right place, right time. Had some great legislative support from the likes of Adam Koenig and Damon Thayer and David Osborne, the the uh, the Speaker of the House. Um, it doesn't work that way everywhere, and we know that. The thing is, track should be wanting this too, right? Track should want their customers to 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 have more money that they can churn. Now. We can't shout from the rooftops that Kentucky is, is doing better than everybody else exclusively because of breakage. But I can guarantee you this. It's not hurting, right? To what degree it's helping, we don't know. But you know, we, we tallied the numbers for the Kentucky Derby alone. There was about $500,000 just in the win place and show pool that went back. Across Oaks and Derby Day, more than a million dollars went back into the hands of horse players in 2023 than uh, in previous years because of this policy. 
This is good for the sustainability of the sport. It's good for getting more money back into the hands of horse players to let them come and churn it. Uh, I appreciate the kind words. It is, it's a tough road. Uh, We're continuing to work on the rules of racing to try to minimize the number of um, uh, unfortunate uh, demotions in the sport. Oklahoma's come on board with that. There's another state that I think and anticipate in the next month or two is going to make a switch. But, you know, if you went back, say, 50, 60 years ago, it took about 20 or 30 years prior to that for America to switch from the foul as a foul concept to what we have today that's more generally known as Category 2. Unfortunately, I think it's probably going to take us 20 or 30 years to get to Category 1, but I hope not that long. Uh, but but th- there is there th- I, I do think there's another state that's coming on board with that element to try and eliminate some some really unjust emotions that I think affect horse players all over the country. Well, Pat, thank you so much for your insights. A fascinating subject, and congratulations on all the good work you've done with the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, uh, delving into the issues of CAWs. Enjoy your stay in South Africa. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate the time as always, and uh, all the best. And as this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Pat Cummings will receive a free one-hour tax consultation with the Green Group. For more information on how the Green Group can help you and maybe save you money on your taxes, you can go to www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonderwheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. With some of the fullest fields in the country and quality racing year-round, there's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high, as is average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky Breds. Breed them. Raise them. Race them. We all win. The TDN Riders Room is brought to you by Kentucky Breds. Three Royal Ascot winners were bred in Kentucky. Congratulations to the connections of King of Steel, the winner of Friday's Group 2 King Edward VII Stakes, Valiant Force, the winner of Thursday's Group 2 Norfolk Stakes, and Crimson Advocate, the winner of Tuesday's Group 2 Queen Mary Stakes. Royal Ascot winners are bred in Kentucky. So let's get back to some of the news that occurred on the racetrack, and this news occurred in Japan. And uh, the last we saw Equinox, the horse was running a tremendous race, a hole in the wind in the Dubai Shima Classic, one of the many Japanese horses that had uh, great success, the races in the Middle East, and uh, was ranked the number one horse in the world. 
Uh, and I can see why, because take a look at what this horse did last Sunday. Back in Japan in the Takarusuka Kanen Stakes. I hate to try to pronounce these things, but I did the best that I can. And uh, you go back and look at the race, a very confident, you can almost say overconfident ride by Christophe Lemaire. Horse was way back early, went widest in the entire field. He rode the horse like uh, he was a one to five shot and, and he won uh, this race, uh, group one back in Japan. The one thing that I didn't see in any of the reports was his status for the Breeders' Cup. Because after he won the Dubai Shima Classic, uh, the connections had said that the uh, Breeders' Cup turf was, was very possible because they would prefer getting firm turf, which they're much more likely to get at Santa Anita than they would be at um, the same time of year, roughly the same time of year in the Arc de Triomphe uh, in Paris. So it would be great to see Equinox come for the Breeders' Cup. But uh, racing uh, has a bright star. And once again, another Japanese horse that is making headlines. Now, when Equinox won the Dubai Shima Classic at Maidan, he looked absolutely brilliant. He ran off one by four lengths. One of the horses that finished way behind him, seven lengths behind him, was Mostadoff, who, of course, came back and won the Prince of Wales's this past week at Royal Ascot. What a performance that was for Equinox. In my opinion, the Taka Razuka Kinnan victory, uh, to my way of thinking, in my eyes, a little bit pierces that aura of invincibility that Equinox had going into the race. Yes, he won, uh, and he went wide and all that to win it, but he won it by a neck. Uh, the horse that finished second in that race was 55 to 1. His name was Through Seven Seas, who had only won one previous race in his career, and it only had a couple of starts since 2021. And I encourage anyone to go back and go to YouTube and look at the Taka Rizuka Kennan again and watch not only Equinox, but watch the runner-up through Seven Seas, who was farther back early than Equinox, who ran just as wide as Equinox, who was stopped cold at the top of the stretch and still came within a neck of beating Equinox. Now, he was getting five pounds. It was 128 pounds is what, is what Equinox carried. And it's the mark of a good horse to win a group one stakes anyway when he's not exactly maybe in his best form, in his peak form. But I was a little disappointed uh, in Equinox's manner of victory in Japan. And I'm looking to see him next time bounce back to that same devastating form that he showed uh, in Dubai. Randy Moss, you're a tough critic, my friend. <laughs> and, and I think you have to remember, too, that uh, being 10 or 12 wide at the head of the lane at Hanshin that day seemed to be the better part of the course. I know some riders did not want to get bogged down on the inside in earlier races. And um, with my rudimentary understanding of the Japanese racing calendar, I believe that is the final Group 1 race in Japan to end the spring season. So the horse is going to be put away for until the autumn anyway. We don't know where he'll resurface, but a beautiful mover with a, a distinctive white blaze, and it'll be interesting to see where he shows up again. So the big card this weekend is Ellis Park running the races that would be, would have been run otherwise at Churchill Downs if they didn't decide to move the meet. Six stakes races on the Churchill card, including three graded stakes races, but the big show is the Stephen Foster Grade 1 
mile and eighth, $1 million. Um, it came up with, you know, very strong. Um, you know, this division doesn't really have a, a clear leader. Cody's Wish is the best older horse in the country, but as of right now, he hasn't ventured into the mile and eighth type races. But uh, uh, you have Proxy, Stiletto Boy, Rattle and Roll, Smile Happy, West Willpower, Last Samurai, uh, to mention uh, a couple of the horses in the race. I am a, I've always been a smile happy fan. And uh, I thought he showed a lot of promise last year running second in the bluegrass, second in the risen star, and was kind of looking for him to make a breakthrough. And he did it last time out in the Ali Sheba stakes against uh, at Churchill Downs against a very strong field. He beat Art Collector and Wes Willpower did it fairly handily. Got that big 110 buyer figure. Uh, that is, uh, Randy, is that close to the best figure of any horse this year? Uh, older horse it is. Yes, it is. Okay. All right. Um, one thing about it though, uh, I did notice that Ken McPeak has two horses in rattle and roll smile happy. I'm scratching my head a little bit. Why, uh, Brian Hernandez is riding rattle and roll and not smile happy. Smile happy. will go with a uh, Corey Lannery, but, uh, an interesting race to top off, uh, uh, racing at Ellis Park, where knock on wood as we speak, has had a perfectly safe meet after a racing moved over from Churchill Downs. And, you know, smile happy in that win in the Ali Sheba stakes uh, on the Derby undercard. You know, he, he had to essentially withstand the two favorites in that race. I mean, he drilled the odds on West Will Power, who was on the lead, and he ran him down. Then he had to brace himself for Art Collector, and he staved him off as well. Uh, as for Rattle and Roll, I've, I've always seen him as a, one of those horses who, you know, he's won three straight races. He seems to be coming into his own as an older horse, and it really takes him a long while to uncoil. He's going to make that one sustained run from the back of the, of the pack, but I think he is uh, going to be a little dependent upon the pace and the trip with as is any type of horse who comes from that far back he should get plenty of pace speed bias will probably go to the lead stiletto boy has speed i'm anxious to see how smile happy runs as well uh, the 110 buyer is the highest buyer for a two-turned older horse cody's wish got a 112 uh when he won the, the one-turn metropolitan handicap smile happy when he won the alley sheba was right up there on the lead with West Willpower. They were kind of walking early. He had a fantastic trip. Uh, he's going to be a little further back this time. It's going to be interesting. What a race. What a race the Stephen Foster is. It's what you get when you put up a million dollars. And what a day uh, at Ellis Park on Saturday. The trainer, Brad Cox, is set up to have if all goes well. He's got West Willpower in the Stephen Foster. The American Derby, he's got Wadsworth, who will probably be the favorite. He should have won his last race in the Caesars. Slow pace hurt him. He's got some pace in there to run at this time. In the Fleur de Lis, he's got the favorite. In Amore, uh, probably a pretty solid favorite. In the Edgewood, Heavenly Sunday, or excuse me, in the Teppan Stakes, he's got Heavenly Sunday, who won the Edgewood in her last race. She'll probably be a solid favorite. And in the Wise Dan, He's got Set Piece, who just won the Arlington Stakes at Churchill. The one, two, three finishers of that race are all coming back in the wise stand. Uh, Set Piece won that race a couple of years ago in 2021. So it's a murderer's row on Saturday at Ellis Park for Brad Cox, even uh, excluding West Willpower. So it'll be interesting to see uh, the kind of day he has. And back to Smile Happy. What on earth will Mattress Mac do if Run Happy gets his first grade one winner? Free mattresses for a year for everybody in Houston. Um, but, yeah, you're right, Randy. A terrific card and a very good race. This 
The TD and Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. We're talking a lot about Arabian Lion, the Amr Zidan owned Bob Baffert trained three year old. Don't forget about the other one, Arabian Night. He gets the work of the week. It was Saturday, 124.2 for Bob Baffert at Santa Anita. Arabian Night, an undefeated three year old. Remember, he hasn't run since he won the Southwest Stakes at Oakland all the way back on Jan 28, but he's now had five breezes since then, and he is nearing his next start. Arabian Night, reminder, was a $250,000 Keeneland September yearling and a $2.3 million OBS two-year-old. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TD and Riders Room also brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie. It was a five-win week for West Point. As previewed here last week, Mount Up, a $400,000 Saratoga yearling buy, made his second lifetime start, a winning one for Todd Pletcher, winning the Thursday opener at Belmont Park. That was back-to-back wins for West Point, who had already won a $100,000 Indiana bred stakes race on Wednesday with the horse named Runaway Rojo. And on Saturday, Bourbon Ready won an optional claiming allowance at Laurel. Empire Ride did the same at Belmont. And Unbridled Mary took home the chicken fried steaks at Lone Star Park. And this weekend, Parnak, June 11th allowance winner at Belmont, heads to the Grade 3 Robert Dick Memorial at Delaware. West Point Thoroughbreds, one of the sponsors of the TD and Riders Room. And this week's Remy Block cartoon is in. Remy's cartoon appears every Friday in the TDN, and he looks at what would happen if racing forays into the world of AI. So check out uh, Remy's cartoon. Well, that's a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank TD Thornton and Randy Moss, my cohorts. I want to thank our co-producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, our editors, Aaliyah LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson, and as always, our mascot, Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Out cold. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.